Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Are you guys ready to head into the Word of God today? As with the last couple of um, weeks, um, you will probably have to go back and listen to the podcast. We're going to be going into... um, a couple of different places. I am very much aware that I am kind of asking our church to go a little bit um, deeper um, as we've gone through this series. Um, But if you are new to us at New Spring Church, we are in a short series, which is very rare for us um, as a church. Usually our series go for the majority of the year. In fact, our main series for this year has gone for um, the majority of the year. Um, But we are in a short series, which is called The Fifth Act. The Fifth Act. And... um, What we want to do today is actually focus on what does it mean for us as followers, as apprentices of Jesus Christ, um, to actually participate faithfully in God's narrative. Um, A couple of weeks ago, we started this, and in in the first week, we were talking about this whole idea of how is the Bible authoritative in your life? When we say that the Bible has the final authority in my life, what exactly does that mean? How do you apply that to social conversations and things which are currently in play? Um, Just like uh, at the moment, the dads are in, a couple of dads are, well, quite a few dads are at our place, and we're going through a sexuality and gender course. Um, And there's a whole bunch of conversations which are up, aren't they? So how is the Bible authoritative in that kind of context when there are conversations happening which didn't necessarily really happen um, 20 years ago, let alone 2,000 years ago. A couple of weeks ago, Mark Zuckerberg got up and he announced that the, um, the, the company with that holds Facebook is changing its name to Meta. And he, he, he boldly um, communicated the vision along with um, other entities like Google where they are um, developing um, this idea of a Metaverse. So what's it going to be like when like, all of us are kind of sitting at home and we're like, the, you remember the movie Wally? Yeah. We're just sitting in our lounges and we've just been engrafted into a digital universe. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, how does discipleship play out there? Because there are certainly things which aren't permissible out here in the real world, but what happens when we actually get sucked into there? So there are conversations. The Apostle Paul never in his wildest imaginations thought of a digital universe ever in his wildest imaginations. So how is the Bible authoritative in that context? And what we were saying is that a lot of us, um, well, well, as as humans, our biology actually uh, means that we want to actually do everything in the lowest common denominator, amen? Don't you want to do things the easiest way? That even comes down to our brain functionality. Our brains are incredible. But biologically, we always want to go down to the lowest common denominator. And particularly as Christians, I've discovered Christians all the time, they want to be told what to think about this. Dave, tell me what to think about that. Yet the Bible is actually offering a different paradigm for you and I. Because the Bible is actually the narrative of God, which is actually given to us to train us, not necessarily what to think, that'll be part of it, but broadly and much more largely, how to think. So that is the conversation we are in at the moment as New Spring Church, a conversation as to how are we to think, how are we to live faithfully as followers of Jesus Christ in this present age. And in session one, we um, were um, following um, a proposal by Tom Wright, 
as he proposed the Bible narrative as a story which is in five different acts. Five different acts. Um, Act one, he was saying, is is creation. As you read through Genesis, you read that. Act two is the fall. And um, two weeks ago, we went through a bit of that. We talked about um, Genesis three. We also went to Genesis six, which is part of the fall um, narrative, which many Christians have no idea is actually there. Chapter 6 is where we actually get um, introduced this idea that not only was there a rebellion down on earth with Adam and Eve and humanity, but there has also been a rebellion in the heavenlies, hence why Christ is reconciling all things on heaven, in heaven and earth. That, that the issue at hand is bigger than just Caleb doing something dumb five minutes ago, right? Not that he ever does, but the issue at hand... The issue at hand is that there are actually principalities, powers, dominions. There's these language. There are these entities, these characters in play, which are influencing and affecting. And what Jesus has done, he's actually um, brought a solution, not just to like our condition as humanity, but he's also bringing together all of heaven and all of earth together. That's a big thing which we don't think deeply about. The third act is all about Israel, about how God chose Israel. Um, And that starts from Genesis chapter 12. Act 4 is about Jesus. And we spent a lot of time uh, in Jesus. We went through the the Gospel of Mark. And this year we went through the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount in quite quite some depth. And Act 5, Tom Wright proposes, is the act that we are currently in right now. The problem with Act 5 is that we're only given sketches. The book of Acts is kind of like the opening scene of Act 5. So we kind of get the introduction. This is where this story is kind of going. Book of Revelation and a couple of other um, passages in the New Testament corpus, we're actually given some sketches about how this is going to win. But but ultimately, Act 5, where we are right now, we're given the beginning, we're given some sketches in the end, and in the middle where we are right now means that we need to improvise faithfully the drama of God which is being unfolded in the world right here, right now. And that means that you and I cannot... Have a mindset, Dave, tell me what to think, because if you were to be a true, uh, faithful follower of Jesus Christ, improvising the drama of God right now, the paradigm we have to have is, how am I supposed to think? All right? So in that regard, the Bible is an unfinished drama, which contains its own impetus, its own forward momentum, which demands to be concluded in the proper manner. It requires that actors are responsible for entering into the story as it stands in order to first understand how the threads could appropriately be drawn together and then to put that understanding into effect by speaking and acting with both innovation and consistency. I mean, that's exciting and a little bit scary at the same time, right? You know what that means, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? It means we're going to get a whole bunch of stuff right And chances are we're going to get a whole bunch of stuff wrong. But isn't it good that we're a community of grace and love and forgiveness? Isn't that good? Doesn't that make sense that if we had to improvise this drama, knowing that we're going to get some things right, we're going to get some things wrong, isn't it good to know that when I do make some mistakes, I can go to Danny and Danny's actually going to say, Dave, I know you should have done better, but I forgive you. And I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to call you brother. Isn't that good? That's great, isn't it? It's awesome. Session two, a couple of weeks ago, a fortnight ago, um, we wanted to actually delve a little bit more into this fall, what happened. And we were introduced to these characters, these mysterious characters, which are currently in play, which we don't necessarily recognize and we certainly cannot um, physically see. 
The, the, the Bible from um, Genesis throughout to the end of um, the, the, the Bible talks about um, beings like principalities, powers, um, dominions, the Satan. You know, like there's, uh, there's powers like sin and death. There are these things in play. There are these characters in play. And what we were talking about is that, yes, that these powers and authorities, they have been disarmed because of the victory of Jesus Christ. But they are still enticing and they are still seducing the church. Because as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to understand and recognize that we have now been renewed and restored to our original vocation as image bearers of God, as found in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, where we are literally those who reflect the glory of God out into the world and we reflect the praise of creation back to God. So, so we are restored back to that original vocation. So it makes sense that the principalities, the powers, Satan and all that, they are still scheming and they are still enticing the church so that we don't do what we are supposed to do. That makes sense, doesn't it? You know, so we talked about this idea of liturgies, that we as humans, we are shaped. We are shaped by liturgical practice, the daily, the weekly, the monthly, the yearly habits that we do personally, but also as a family, whether they be sacred or secular, they shape us. And sometimes we are shaped more by our secular practices than we are by our sacred practices. And what we need to understand is that behind these ideologies, behind these practices, there are principalities and there are powers that are actually trying to seduce us. They're trying to tempt us. They don't want you to rock up and praise Jesus. They don't want you to go and serve. They don't want you to give. They want you to live in dehumanizing ways as opposed to living as truly human as the church of Jesus Christ. Did you tell me you remember that? Okay. If not, you can go back and you can actually um, go through. Um, it's on podcasts. It's on, on YouTube. So today, I want to talk about how we um, faithfully improvise personally in our present evil age. And um, we're going to um, kick off from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 to 22. Then I'm going to show a, a, one of my favorite videos, and then we're going to try and break this down a little bit. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 to 22. Paul um, read, uh, writes to the collective churches, and he writes this. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is, being, is joined together and rises to become a holy Temple. Everyone say temple. Because we need to talk a little bit about temples in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. And before we start breaking this stuff down, I want to um, put on my favorite Bible project video. And it is my favorite because they just somehow managed to capture so much biblical truth in one video. So, how about you look at this? And we're going to talk a bit about temples. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. 
And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die. But this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's 
healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. That is why it is my favorite Bible Project video. And they have a lot of great stuff as well. Yesterday, Jackson and Kayla were, a couple of times, they were just like on my with me and they were just wanting to watch that video over and over and they were actually asking a lot of questions and it's incredible to me like the um the questions actually come out of children so um and they were actually like starting to get it and uh, one of the problems that we as western christians have is that we've got about uh, we've got decades and decades of discipleship where we focus on the thing which isn't the focus and the idea of thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven does not even feature in our theology. And that is why we are in a little bit of a mess right now. But by the grace of God, we get to start all over again and um, relearn the gospel. Amen. So we're not familiar, nor are we comfortable with temples, um, because there's an awareness that they are kind of otherly to us. But nonetheless, in scripture, temples are this thread, which um, this theological thread from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, as that video kind of um, showed. And in our, in our um, scripture, God creates temples. He rests in temples. He rebuilds temples. In fact, he calls us his temple. And as people who live in the fifth act, I think one of the difficulties that we have is that our story begins in act number one. And act number one is a place and a time which is so far removed from where we are in Perth, Western Australia, 2021. Act number one begins in a time and place which is known as the ancient Near East. The ancient Near East. Very, very far from Perth, Western Australia. Um, but the ancient Near East. In modern Australia, we know very little about temples. But in the ancient Near East, the idea of temples was completely universal. In fact, as you read through the book of Genesis, guess what portion of history Genesis was actually 
collated, studied the oral tradition and all that. The ancient Near East, right? So, so anyone who was in the ancient Near East, they understood some of the language, some of the things that were happening even as our creation narrative is being unfolded. They, they would understand just universally and automatically that, that when Genesis is describing this creation, what Genesis is describing is the creation of a temple. Because everyone in the ancient Near East knew that it took seven days to build a temple. Everyone in the, in the ancient Near East knew that gods or gods rested in temples. That was the common language. After a temple was built, a god would go and rest in the temple. Everyone in the ancient Near East knew that in a temple you would go in and you would find image bearers. So they automatically knew that, that, that in Genesis, this creation account, oh, God's building a temple. Exactly what was spoken by Tim Mackey. See, I just, I just read smart people. <laughs> That's what they knew. But, but one thing that's really particular to us and something that um, is really prominent, especially in a letter like the Ephesians letter, is that there was something very, very specific about temples. You only built temples in the ancient Near East when something happened. What would happen is that your nation would go and defeat another nation. And if your nation defeated the other nation, that meant that you can build a temple. Because what that meant, it didn't mean that your army beat the army of that nation. No, it meant that your God beat that God's backside. That's what it meant. It was actually our God defeated your God. And because of that, we build a temple. And the temple was supposed to be a monument to the victory of your God. That's what a temple is. And the second thing about a temple, there was this understanding that when you build a temple, which is a monument to the victory of your God, your God rests in that temple. And that literally means that is God's space. God's space. So when the New Testament talks about us individually, but even more so importantly, collectively as a church, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, guess what? Our lives are supposed to be a monument to the victory of Christ. And this is quite literally God's space right here, right now. And that changes stuff, doesn't it? But if we don't understand anything about temples, we don't understand, wait a minute, the way that we are supposed to live and breathe and actually be together, the, the, the way that I interact, the way that I take the light in you and you take the light in me, the way that I love you and the way that you love me, the unity that we fight for, right, as the family of God, that the way that we live, this is actually a monument declaring the victory of our God. Paul says, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. The church is the temple of God. And they have a cosmic role to play. Ephesians 3 verse 10, God's purpose in all of this was to use the church, which is his temple, right? To display his wisdom in its rich variety, get this, to all the unseen rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Wow, we are showcasing the victory of God, not just to this world, but to the principalities and the powers and the dominions who are in heavenly places. That's straight from Scripture. In case we become a little bit too progressive and modern in our Christianity, right? Because modern people don't believe in evil until you come face to face with it, right? This was his eternal plan. Wow, this was his plan. 
which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into his presence. Well, of course you can, because a temple is literally God's space. He is right here, right now. You sitting, it looks like you're sitting pretty boldly and confidently right now. We are all in the presence of God right now. Amen? Amen. So the church is quite literally communities all over the world, communities of resurrection life and resurrection power scattered throughout the entire world. My intrigue and our intrigue as New Spring Church is how do we faithfully participate in the victory of Christ or the victory of God so that we can genuinely, as a community, genuinely experience this resurrection life and resurrection power? Because how many of you know that the world needs some real power, some real life? I'm the senior pastor of this church. I've been doing this for a long time now. Guess what? I know there's people in our church and you literally need some real resurrection life right now. Like, we've been playing games. Like, you know, like a lot of, like, like you can sort of put up a post or something and say, this is the power of God here. But sometimes you come to a point in place where it's like, you know what? That, that looks like power, but right now I'm in a position where I, really, I need the real thing. I need like for real, for real. I need the power of God. I need resurrection power. And if scripture says that this life and this power is actually accessible because we are the church, we are the temple. My intrigue is how do we posture ourselves so that we actually genuinely experience this power? How do we live in such a way that our lives stand as a monument to Christ? How do we live in such a way that our imaginations do not get hijacked by the ideologies and the patterns and the practices of this present evil age? And behind those ideologies and behind those practices are the powers of the devil, is the authorities who are scheming and enticing Christians to actually leave their posts, to come out of the temple and actually go and live out in the world. How is it that we refuse to allow our imaginations to be hijacked? because that would be kind of cool I'm kind of thinking so how do we do this how does New Spring Church live as a monument to the victory of God and the answer according to the New Testament has everything to do with the cross everything every single worship song we sung today was all about our humble king it was all about the cross the cross is not an entry ticket that you use to get into heaven, and then after you got your ticket, you discard it, you throw it in the bin, and you just carry on with your life. No, 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 no. The cross is to meddle with, to shape with every single facet of our being, every single part of it. It is to completely mess us up in the most godly possible way. And the problem is, is that the way of the cross, theologically, we, we would call this cruciformity, right? To be shaped by the cross in, in such a real way. The, the, this actually is the antithesis to our um, current wisdom of this age. Because the way of the cross, get this, it does not bode well with certain ideologies. It certainly does not bode well with a liberal democracy, with the ideologies of liberal democracy. We're in this world, but we're not of this world. Yeah, have a quick look on Facebook and Twitter right now. Christians seem to be in this world and of this world because they are just going nuts. But to live a cruciform life means that I actually say no to my individual rights and I say yes to being crucified daily. Come to Jesus. That's the life. That's what it is. It says, 
yes to loving and preferring my neighbor. It says yes to being a peacemaker. It says yes to pouring out mercy. It says yes to compassion. It says yes to love. It is like upside down. It is inside out. It is, the, it is an ordering of a brand new society. That's what Jesus died for, an ordering of a brand new society called the kingdom of heaven. It's the politics of heaven. Or as we've learnt this entire year, the ordering of this society is articulated in, guess what? The Sermon on the Mount. There is a method in the madness, church. We are story people, but we are not story people who do not know our story. Rather, we are those who are faithfully improvising the great drama of God in this present world. And how do we do that? Well, we're going to look at Philippians 2 as the master story of how we do this. And Philippians 2, um, it has been identified as the Apostle Paul's master story of how he lived. The, the, the modelling and, and what is um, narrated in, in this passage of Scripture you find throughout Paul's um, other letters. So let me start from Philippians 2, verse 1 to 5. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. That's cool, isn't it? Having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. So Paul is here is communicating to the churches, this church in Philippi in particular. And as he is articulating his vision of the church, which is literally scattered all over the world, communities, pockets of resurrection life. He is actually saying to us that this resurrection presence can only be enjoyed in communities that adopt new postures of living. And these new postures actually come from a mindset, a mindset that is shaped entirely by the cross, by this idea of cruciformity. And the idea, like as that Bible Project video actually showed, is that, that God's um, strategy seems to be that he is invading this present evil age by planting pockets of resurrection life all over the world. Those pockets are called the local church, right? Any wonder that the devil is coming to bring disunity and division and polarization and hatred in the local church? We just need to smarten up because if we actually know, okay, the devil's going to be doing that to the local church. Well, devil, if you're going to be doing that, fine. You can have a crack. But as for us, we're going to be united. We're going to have the same mind. In fact, we're going to go even further. We're going to look to the cross and we are going to completely adopt these postures of cruciformity because we have a mindset that's entirely shaped by the cross. And that's the way that we live. That's the way the church has always lived. That's the way the church changes the world, by the way. All right? We don't change the world by coddling up to power. No. No, no, no. I heard a chuckle there. You've been around long enough to see it, haven't you? Yeah. Resurrection life is experienced when we take on these postures. So let's look at this master story that theologians have unpacked for us. From verse 6 to 8. 
And again, um, this is the mindset we should have, have the same mindset um, as Jesus Christ. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. So scholars have identified this doxology as Paul's master story. It's a story that's counterintuitive, it's countercultural, and it is counterimperial. And the idea is that Paul is exhorting this community in Philippi to actually live in Christ, and that means that our lives are to be shaped by the story of Christ. And um, good for us is that um, scholars have actually identified that there is a, a, a narrative pattern that is found in this, um, which follows um, almost like a, a simple kind of equation, but, it's, but I don't think it's like the, a formula because um, it's far more difficult than that. And this actually means, as we go from here, we're going like, to like look at this narrative, but it actually means that we need to do a whole lot of thinking and praying and searching Scripture so that we are conformed to this kind of way of living. So I've got a slide up for you, and this is the kind of um, the, the formula that is found in Philippians 2, verse 6 to 8. Although X... Not Y, but Z. Although X, not Y, but Z. Started talking to our team about this in August. Although X, not Y, but Z. As we move forward as a church, this is going to become very, very important for all of us, especially me as, um, well, not, not just as a pastor, but also as a husband, as a father, because this paradigm is not just like, when we come together on a Sunday, this is like in your marriages. This is in your workplace. This is all it is. So what does this pattern mean? Well, it speaks of Christ. It speaks of his status, his disposition, and also his activity. And what this says is that Jesus has a certain status. That status is X. Actually, maybe put up the next slide, um, Derek. Let's have a look at this. Although status... So Jesus has a status, he's God. It's a pretty good status, right? You would assume that with the status of God that comes with like certain privileges, you know? Didn't Jesus say, man, I can call an army of angels right now if I wanted? Yeah? He said that, didn't he? I mean, he's God. He can do that. So the idea is that like Jesus, he's God, you know? Which comes with a whole bunch of privilege, a whole bunch of status. But the thing is that even though he has a whole bunch of privileges, he has all of these levers that he could pull for his own advantage, in other words. Even though he has all these levers at his disposal, which he could rightly pull because he's God, he chooses not to. Although he has a status, not why. In other words, not selfishness. He doesn't pull things for his own advantage. Rather, he does the opposite. Not why, but Z. Instead of selfishness, Jesus exhibits continually, all the time, selflessness. He pours out his life. He doesn't expect people to pour into him, he pours into others. Although X, not Y, but Z. So Jesus is God. He does something extraordinary. He does Z. Number one, he voluntarily puts on human flesh, right? 
And he comes in the form of a slave. You know? Now, talking about slavery may not be politically correct right now, but in the first century, there was nothing lower than a slave. Right? He came as the lowest of low. But even more so, it wasn't just putting on flesh and coming on as a slave. He, he went even further. He voluntarily went into this mode of humiliation, self-humbling himself in obedience that led to death. Death on a cross. Although X, not Y, but Z. Although he has privilege, many privileges, many levers, he chooses not to pull any of them, Instead, he pours himself out completely. And this master story tells us something so profoundly about our God. It tells us something so profoundly about Yahweh. Because if you think about it, like if you consider it this way, Jesus is God, Jesus is king. Messiah means king, right? Right? The king, God, right? So where's this world would presume what he did on the cross, it actually seems to be out of nature of what we think a God or what we think a king would do, doesn't it? It seems out of nature because we have, our imaginations have been hijacked by this present evil age. So when we think of a God or when we think of king, we think of power, we think of domineering. So when we see Jesus dying on the cross, we think, oh, wait a minute, Jesus is God. That must be out of character. That must be out of nature. But Paul says, no, what happens on the cross is actually showing us God, Yahweh's true character. And that messes with us. That really does. The cross is a place where God's character is unveiled. Jesus' self-sacrifice is not misguided. It is the very nature of God himself. It is not outside of his character. It is his character. In other words, Yahweh's disposition is not Y, but Z. His actions are Z. His nature is Z. And Paul actually lets us know. He reads, read on from Philippians 2, verse 9. Therefore God exalted him, that be Jesus, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what Paul does right now, which we don't get, is in this moment he is reaching all the way back to Isaiah right now. He's actually reaching right back and he is using the very words of Yahweh himself and he has put it into Philippians 2 verse 9 to 11. Isaiah verse 45 verse 22 to 23 says this, should be up on the screen, and this is God, this is Yahweh speaking. He says, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth is uttered in all integrity, a word that will not be revoked, before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. So what's happening on the cross, this narrative, not only is it a mindset that we need to adopt, but what it is actually showing, this is the true nature and the true character of Yahweh himself. What Jesus demonstrates in his life and what Jesus lives and demonstrates on the cross has a name, and that name is Yahweh. Come on. I grew up, I mean, I grew up like I'm a... Um, 
I'm a good old Pentecostal at heart. Well, I used to be. I don't know if I am right anymore. Maybe we might try that out. But I remember growing up and um, we used to love like certain passages of, the, of Scripture. Like one, of, one of our favourites was 2 Peter 1 verse 3 to 4. Listen to this. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of this world caused by evil desires. I mean, you could get a church to jump up and down and shout hallelujah by these great and exceeding promises. We are partakers of the divine nature. But the divine nature is Z. That's the bit which I wasn't told. But it's kind of cool to know, isn't it? Because when we adopt these postures, the New Testament promises actually says that when we adopt, when we adopt postures around Z, right? Not, not selfishness or selflessness. Pouring my life out, that puts me in a posture where true resurrection life and true resurrection power is available. And our world needs true resurrection life and true resurrection power. Our church needs it. And I'm just intrigued, but what would it look like if a church collectively had the, that mindset of Christ and actually said, you know what, we aren't going to play any games, we're not going like to put up these, these, these. it's almost like you've got like a, like, it's a bad analogy, but just say you've just got like, got like a, a, a bottle of Coke, right, but Coke's not inside of it, you know, you've actually put some other like nasty stuff, I mean Coke's nasty, but some other nasty <laughs> stuff, right? Just nasty stuff. Like you imagine just putting some like, vit- like brown vinegar and stuff, and, and someone takes a swig. I mean, it looked like Coke, but it's not it. So, so sometimes I think maybe we're portraying this thing, this is the power of God, but really I don't think we've touched it as yet. Because in order to live in resurrection life and resurrection power, it simply means that we need to adopt postures of Z. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Some of Paul's kind of thinking, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 6, 8. Nor did we see glory from men, neither from you or from others, even though, get this, even though, he's going to talk about status. I haven't got the scripture up there, just listen to me. Even though as apostles, status. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. Oh, there's why. But, here comes Z. We prove to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you have become very dear, dear to us. Do any study. Do a study in Paul. Do a study in Paul's introductions. And he's like the Apostle Paul, right? You will notice that the highest he ever calls himself, the highest he ever dares to elevate himself in a community of faith, the, the, the highest he ever goes is by calling himself a co-worker, side by side. That's the highest he ever goes. More normally, he'll actually say, I'm a slave, I'm a bondservant, I'm a nursing mother. Like a nurse. He's adopting Z, you see. He's adopting Z. To be conformed in the image of Christ means we are to continually be shaped by the cross. This is hard stuff, by the way, just letting you know. And this is a, this is a place where 
Like, we're going we're gonna to say, okay, we want to adopt these postures, but a lot of times we're not going to get it right. And again, thank God for a community of grace and forgiveness and love, brothers and sisters together. But it actually means that um, to be continually shaped by the cross in this narrative, I have to be continually repenting. What does that mean? To be rethinking, to continually be reimagining. I would hope and I pray that those of you who've been on this journey for the last nine and a half years, that you have seen that like, there's been some change in your senior pastor. I would hope so. Um, you've, had, you've got a different husband, haven't you, babe? Praise God. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just talk about me. I've got some status. Although X. In this Western world, as for the... Well, let's for the majority of, of history, I guess. First thing off the bat, and ladies, I really apologise for this. First privilege I have is that I'm a male. Okay? Even in the church. Now, we need to change a social narrative because you will see the way that Jesus, and if you actually do some decent study, you will see the way that the Apostle Paul works alongside women is very different to the way the majority of the church has for the last couple of thousand years. But I'm a male, status. I'm a husband, I'm a father. By virtue of living in Australia, I'm one of the most wealthiest people in the world, believe it or not. I'm a spiritual leader, I'm a senior pastor, I'm a community leader, I'm even a leader within our church movement, Churches of Christ. And with that X, with that status comes certain levers that I can pull for my own advantage, aren't there? Physically, I'm stronger than Andrew is. I'm stronger than my kids are. What does gentleness look like in that paradigm? You know, I may not be the smartest person in this room, but I am very good at thinking deeply and thinking in a critiquing kind of way as to how the gospel and the world are to be integrated. I can use that to my own advantage, easy, easy. I hold the valid spiritual card because I am the pastor. And there have been many, many people who have abused that spiritual card. We've had people in this church who have abused that spiritual card. It's a card that can easily, it's a lever, can pull it. How dare you? I'm the senior pastor, I'm going to pull I've got a pretty big personality, have you realised? I'm pretty charismatic. These are levers, right? These are levers that are at my disposal to use for my own advantage. And the question is, do I pull them? And the narrative of Jesus, the master story of Paul, says don't pull them. Paul, in his letters, you will find that he is very much aware of his status. He knows who he is. He doesn't have an identity crisis. There's no issue with that. He knows his status and he also knows the privileges that come with that status. He knows that there are levers that he can pull. And Paul, just like Jesus and like many others, refuses to pull him. Instead of pulling these levers of advantage, he pulls himself out like a cup pours out whatever 
contents are in that cup. He pours and pours and pours and pours and pours to the very last drop. Listen to um, Philippians 2, verse 17 to 18. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and serves coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Gee, it's interesting that as you're being poured out, it's like you're being emptied, eh? Can you imagine being emptied out on other people, being emptied out for the glory of God and rejoicing as you are feeling more and more empty. Is that not the opposite to where we are? <laughs> Second Timothy, oh. Imagine the conversations he had with Timothy. Oh. Second Timothy 4 verse 6. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering and my time and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul uses his image of this drink offering being poured out in the same way that the Old Testament practices poured out a drink offering during worship. After a priest would sacrifice a lamb or a ram or a goat, there would actually be a pouring out of wine beside the altar, which symbolized the dedication of a person in worship. So in other words, this posture of Z, this posture of selflessness, this posture of pouring out a life. For Paul's imagination, this pouring out of my life, that is worship. It's nice. We come, we sing 20 minutes of songs. That might be part of your worship but my life being poured out for other people. That's worship. Not pulling the levers of privilege. That's one thing that as we go from this place, I would encourage you to think deeply about. What is the status you have? What are the levers that you have? As a man, woman, as a, someone who lives in Australia, as a husband, as a wife, as parents. And what are the privileges that come with that? What are the things that you can use to your own advantage? What are the levers? And am I going to pull those? Worship isn't singing some songs. It's part of it, I guess. Part of our liturgical um, practice is rocking up every Sunday to a worship service. That's part of our worship. I get that. But worship is pouring out our lives. Worship is actually having a life that's shaped by the cross, not pulling levers of advantage, rather being poured out to the very last drop. Not Y, but Z. Not holding on to our rights, but following the example of Jesus Christ. This is the master story. And if this posture is something that we adopt, we become a monument to the victory of Christ. That's how we become a monument. That's how we live and participate in the victory of Christ. And the only way to experience this real resurrection power and life in your beautiful family and in this beautiful church is to ask the question, am I pulling levers or am I pouring my life out? Are you still pouring your life out or have you stopped?
That's a big one. Have you stopped? Because I would encourage you, start pouring out again. Dave's saying that because New Spring, no, New Spring don't need. Jesus said he'll build his church. What I do here, I hold very lightly. For a moment, for a moment, I am blessed to serve a senior pastor. But the head of this church is Jesus. You can pour out and have the rottenest attitude and you're not pouring out. Paul exhorts Timothy to follow him as he follows Christ. And Jesus and Paul and a myriad of others throughout our beautiful, beautiful history, they don't stop pouring until the very last drop. You see, that is a life that is a community that is shaped by the cross. And Paul says to a community, to a church, collectively foster, nurture, have the same mindset of Christ. Could you imagine if every single person in our church had that mindset? Whew. Incredible, right? Man, it is a life shaped by the cross. It's called cruciformity. It's the posture of resurrection life. And it's a posture that stands as a monument to the victory of Jesus in this present evil age. That's how we participate. Amen. Did you learn something from that? Let's pray. Father, we just come before you so humbly. and I thank you so much for the way you revealed yourself in this grand drama that is currently being outworked. I pray for us just as your children, as we come together, just shoulder to shoulder, serving each other, loving each other, that we would be even more faithful in adopting these postures, Lord to being a faithful witness, to live worthy of the calling for we've been called by God. We are the church of Jesus Christ. I pray for this beautiful church, New Spring Church, that she would stand as a monument to the victory of Jesus Christ. And as she stands in faithfulness, that there would just be a, a declaration, not just to this world, but to the principalities and the powers, a declaration of your wisdom a declaration of your love, a declaration of your forgiveness. I ask that we would be ordered in such a way that we are so countercultural, that we are this different, distinctly different society. We are this community of true humanity, new creation, the church of Jesus Christ, unashamed of the victory of Christ. Knit us together, I pray.